Show MTR Radio Network, John Pielli, Hour 2 of the radio program. Want to start out by thanking my guests in the first hour, former Giants pitcher John D'Aquisto and former Phillies pitcher Dave Coggin. Great job. A lot of good insight by both of them. I do want to start this hour by opening up the phone lines. I, I'm particularly interested in hearing from some Yankee fans. If you want to get in, voice your opinion, let us know what's going through your mind now. How much of a change do you want to see here in the Bronx? 
You know, everything was going right coming in, and you know the Yankees always got the firepower, the ability, the resources to win it all. And that's the goal of every Yankee fan coming into the season, to go out there and win the whole damn thing. You know, a, a little wild card appearance, a little uh, uh, division championship banner ain't good enough. And we understand that. The Yankees live in a different level. They're at a different level than other organizations. 27 World Series championships, and it's something to be proud of. Even if you're a Yankee fan over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, you've seen five World Series championships, 96, 98, 99, 2000, and 2009. You go back a little further, you remember 77 and 78. And, of course, you know, what, what happened before that, if you're a little bit older. But as a Yankee fan, whether you're growing up, whether you're older, and you got to see some of the ones from the – the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and maybe even before that if you're lucky enough. You've seen a team that has had to set the precedence in Major League Baseball for winning. And that's what it's about. And yeah, that's what it's about. Everything George Steinbrenner, you know, over making that team, Steinbrenner there, and over making that team want to go out there and good win. enough to just be competitive. It isn't good enough. And unfortunately, the 2012 season, and unfortunately, the 2012 season, most of the Yankee fans, the opinions of most of the Yankee fans, is a failure, but I do want to get your opinion. Get up here. So I do want to get your opinion. Let you kind of jump stuff out a little bit. Let's get some more opinions about it. Let us know what you think. Get some opinion. Because I want to know what you think about the situation. Because I want to jump into the Sayrod situation. Embarrassment. And honestly, I think it's what the New York Yankees done. And it's what the New York Yankees have done. You got a guy who, yes, is making twenty. You got a guy who's making yearly, what, twenty-seven million dollars a year, ten-year contract, average annual value. Still has ten years more years left. That he still has five more years left. I get the frustration, and I get that. I get the frustration. The amount of money he's getting paid. You know, the amount of money he's getting paid. Fifty home runs every season to go out there and hit fifty home runs. You got to understand. You got an aging player. You got to understand. You got an aging player who's getting his last contract, who's getting his last five years, as opposed to the last four years. Five years, and obviously the last two five have years. not gone well, and obviously the last two have not gone well. The injury last year, then the, you know, the injury last year, then the you know the injury is this year, the amount of time he's missed from Alex Rodriguez certainly leaves a lot of Rodriguez certainly leaves a lot of desire. What the New York Yankees have done, what the New York Yankees have done, Rod, first in game five Rod, of the division series Memorial, of the division series against the Memorials, and you're pinch hitting for a net line. And the managerial decision mind. You want to get the managerial decision, give you the best chance of the guy up that you think is going to get the best chance to hit Raul Bonyas. And obviously, the important one, Raul Bonyas is hitting extra and hitting a walk off Jim John a couple innings later. Hitting a walk off Joe Girardi a couple innings later. Joe Girardi had a hand of gold there. Joe Girardi had a hand of gold there. As this thing has transpired, as this thing has transpired, it has gone insane. And I'm sure the media is, the New York media has been on every show. New York media has been on every show. I was talking about every baseball talk show is talking about Yankees and the Alex Rodriguez situation. Yankees and the Alex Rodriguez situation. You can bench him, but I'll tell you, just like bench him. Nick Swisher was benched. Just like, just like Curtis Granderson was benched. benched. Just like Curtis Granderson was benched. I'll tell you, it is an embarrassment. I'll tell you, with the New York Yankees organization, the side of the New York Yankees organization decided to do with Alex Rodriguez. You sit him in game three. You sit him in game three. You could almost win people over. And you could almost win people over. Maybe it's that last one little stand and maybe that, that last, last little, little bit of fire, that, that last little bit of fire to get that your you star need. player to perform to get at a high star player to perform at a high level. Once it was announced that Alex Rodriguez was not in the starting lineup for game four of the league championship series, that's when you're you're going to a different level. And I'm sorry, anybody that wants to justify it is just a bitter fan right now. They're a bitter fan that wants somebody to be a scapegoat for everything that's going on in your organization. And honestly, I can't deal with that. To me, that's sour grapes by people that are just bitter. Because you go into a postseason with your best players. And you go out there with the thought that you're going to get the best from your best players. And you can't do it if they're sitting on a freaking bench. And whether Alex Rodriguez would have made a difference in this series or not, you'll never know. And most fans will say, oh, well, you know what? He's struggled for most of the season. 
You know, he hasn't really been the A-Rod of, you know, 2000 to 2003, yada, yada, yada. But that's a lot of baloney because you're not going to see anything. You cannot put this postseason on A-Rod now. And honestly, the people that are to blame more than anything right now is the Yankee ownership and the Yankee front office and everybody that put that decision together to make Alex Rodriguez a scapegoat for the entire postseason. Because that's what they want you to believe right now. As the Yankees close out their 2012 season, and listen, I, I don't like to say anything's over, but down 6 nothing to a point where you haven't gotten a hit, which I, I haven't checked to see if the Yankees got a hit yet. And no, they still don't have a hit. Two outs in the fifth inning. Or I'm sorry, actually, they went through the fifth inning. So all the way through the fifth inning, no hits against Max Scherzer. And, and obviously, I don't think that there's going to be anything to be excited about, anything to take out of this game. But I'll tell you this. This postseason went from being just a disappointment to outright ugly. And yes, you want, you want to talk about the lack of hitting up and down in the New York Yankee order. I think that's fair. I think that's something that could be talked about, that should be spoken about. But anyone who wants to go out there and put the entire blame for three of the final five games of the team's postseason is an absolute embarrassment. And we were talking at the beginning of this postseason. And it, it, it's, it's so amazing to see where things go in a couple weeks. We were talking about how, how are you going to explain to Alex Rodriguez that he wasn't going to be the number three hitter in the lineup. You were talking about that before. You know, on, on mainstream media, all talk shows, we're talking about should you move A-Rod out of the three spot? Should you move him down in the order? And, and you know, the consensus was, yeah, they probably should. They probably should move him down in the order. But what they've done is they've gone the extreme. Hal Steinbrenner, Randy Levine, Brian Cashman, Joe Girardi, anybody is going to get on the microphone and try to sell anybody that this postseason was Alex Rodriguez's fault. You know, I, I just hope they don't waste those words. That would be the stupidest thing that anybody's going to ever hear. You want to get into the whole, you know, is A-Rod you know, good for the Yankees in the future? Do the Yankees have to trade him now? Listen, we could talk about that all day. And let's be honest, we got, you know, how many more months until spring training to be able to talk about it? You know, if I open, you know, if I'm able to take any phone calls from Yankee fans right now, I'm sure the number one thing they want to talk about is what should the Yankees do with Alex Rodriguez. But how how about this? How about answer this question? How big of an embarrassment is it that your best hitter, a guy with 640 what 647 career home runs, is sitting on a bench for the final two games of your season healthy? And you don't even have a freaking hit to show for it in your last game. So the answers, the answers that you could say, everybody but Alex Rodriguez is good. Well, what have they done? They haven't given you crap. Chavez booted a ball. Teixeira misplayed a couple balls. They're, they're looking like a bunch of a bunch of little leaguers out there. Tigers got two on with two outs here in the fifth inning, and it looks like they don't want to stop. And all these people want to talk about is, hey, Alex Rodriguez, he's the cancer of the team. He ruined this season. You're out of your ever-loving mind. You can't blame a guy that ain't on the freaking field. But the Yankees, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Somebody's going to try to sell you or sell the fan on, well, Alex Rodriguez wasn't producing. We did what we had to do. You don't make moves like that in the middle of the postseason. You played 162 games. 162 games long enough is a way to friggin' sell somebody on what your team should look like in a postseason. You cannot go out there and try to sell that there's got to be serious lineup changes in the middle of a postseason. And you're going to tell me that your number three hitter, struggling or not, having a bad year or not, having a bad two years or not, is better off on the bench than in your lineup when you're playing an elimination game. 
And I'll tell you, you look at what the Yankees look like offensively, and Max Scherzer deserves some credit, as he'll take a no-hitter into the sixth inning. But the Yankee players and the response from the Yankees have shown you what you have to hear. That I guarantee it. That you interview some of these players, you interview enough of these guys that are in the lineup, and you're going to get a soundbite. You're going to get somebody that's going to go out there and tell you that they didn't agree with Alex Rodriguez sitting on the bench. And guess what? It's not going to be a surprise. It's not going to be a surprise at all. But I tell you, this this season, which could have just gone into the sunset, let's be honest with you. The New York Yankees 2012 season could have just gone like some of the other seasons have gone. You know, un, you know, an unfortunate season that you just couldn't get the big prize. You made it to the ALCS. I know it's not good enough for you Yankee fans, but you could have gone out of here with some dignity. You really could have. You could have gone out here with some dignity and said, hey, you gave it your all. You, know, you went out there with your best team. And he just lost. But now you want to make it more about other things. You want to try to make it about Alex Rodriguez. How the hell can you make it about Alex Rodriguez if you didn't even friggin' play him? So you took a situation where you could have rode off into the sunset. You could have just said, hey, this was a disappointing season. We're going to make the necessary changes to make this team competitive and win a World Series in 2013. And you went from that simple thing which most teams can say, and the Yankees have said it several years in the past. And he made it into this disgusting monstrosity of a chain of events that has happened here. And to me, I can't buy it. And if I'm a Yankee fan, I'd be disgusted right now. Not necessarily for the way the team's played, but yeah, that has something to do with it. Because the team has played like crap since the postseason started. They haven't hit worth of anything. And you want to look at A-Rod's numbers. Well, hey, he was one for seven in the ALCS. Well, yeah, he only got seven at-bats, you moron. What about Robinson Cano getting going 29 at-bats without a hit? What about Nick Swisher and Curtis Granderson? Nobody gave you anything, but you're going to pin it on A-Rod. Yeah, that, that's real classy. And listen, we could spend this whole offseason, and I'm sure we'll have some good discussion about it. What are the Yankees going to do from here? And I'm sure Brian Cashman, after this game, will sell you on how we're going to make this team competitive. What happened today is unacceptable. Yada, yada, yada. What happened in 2012 is not the Yankee way. The Yankee way is winning the World Series or nothing. But listen, you guys handled yourselves not very classy at all. And, and listen, I'm being real light about it. Because I got some other opinions that I'm not even going to share right now. And I'll tell you, it, it, it is not, it, it's not the way that you run a baseball team. And it, is it going, going, am I going to totally criticize management in the front office and the ownership over one move to sit A-Rod for a couple games? No. But I'll tell you that one particular move was a very bad move. And Alex Rodriguez could sit on the bench in his sweatshirt and watch the other guys try to get a hit against Max Scherzer. And the Yankee fan will cheer when somebody finally gets a base hit. Because you know the chance of a no-hitter in a postseason game ever happening. It only happened twice. Don Larson's perfect game. Roy Halladay's no-hitter the other, you know, a couple years ago. It just doesn't happen in a postseason. Especially when Max Scherzer up at 84 pitches going into the sixth inning. But I'll tell you, man, what a disappointment. And you're not so much disappointed by what you saw on the field because the Yankees did not get the job done on the field, and that's enough. But this situation was an embarrassment. To throw one more opportunity at you, you want to get involved in the passball show, 609-910-0687 as Eduardo Nunez lines a triple for the first hit of the game for the New York Yankees. Let's get the applause going. Doesn't look good. Going to get into the other series. Cardinals, Giants today, 8.05, 8.07, whatever you want to say, start time. Very big game, I think, here. 
because, you know, as we talked about before with John D'Aquisto, Tim Lincecum making the start for the Giants against Adam Wainwright for the Cardinals. Well, an interesting stat I found about Wainwright, Wainwright only almost averaging two strikeouts an inning in the postseason, despite having one good start, one bad start. Eight innings, 15 runs, I'm sorry, eight innings, 15 strikeouts. So he, he's got his game down. It's just a matter of command. And, you know, I think he's capable of going out there and throwing a gem today. I know everybody's talking about Lincecum. Lincecum doing a great job pitching out of the pen. You know, certainly a position that he wasn't very comfortable with. I don't think he wanted to pitch in the, in the bullpen. But the Giants are running some good starters out there. They got Matt Cain, Madison Bumgarner, Ryan Vogelsong. Barry Zito is going to pitch game five. What's amazing about the Giants is you don't see it too often that the Giants are going to play five games with five different starting pitchers. You don't see that anymore. But rather than uh, you know put Barry Zito in the bullpen full-time for the LCS, they're giving him a start. And I think Bruce Bochy likes the matchup. He likes the, you know, he likes the way it's going to look. So go for it, man. You got five good starters, run them all out there. Nobody says you have to go to only three or four starters in a postseason series. But, you know, listen, I, I don't know what to expect. You know, Beltran's day-to-day. We don't know if he's in the lineup. If he is, you know, I, I haven't gotten a copy of the lineup yet. But, listen, I think it's a very good chance for the Giants to even this thing up. And this is an evenly contested series. Like we mentioned before, John D'Acosto and I, there's no question that we could see either one of these teams representing the National League in the World Series this year. But that being said, I think this is going to be a big game. Certainly for the Cardinals, if they could get the third win, be up 3-1 with game five at home. I think you got to like the Cardinals. But the Giants can go out there and listen. These games are going to be close. I don't see any 10-9 to games here. This is a, a matchup of two very good pitching staffs. The Cardinals, who have a very good starting rotation and nobody's really heard about. But remember, Lance went, Lynn won 18 games. Kyle Loesch was 16-3. and three. And you, you forget real quick about Carpenter, who's been one of the best postseason pitchers in the new postseason era. And you throw in Wainwright. And then you talk about the Giants pitchers. The starting pitching is going to be huge in this series, and it has been. And I'll tell you, that's one thing that's going to determine. Who throws the bigger game? Does Lincecum or Wainwright go out there and throw an absolute gem? Because that's going to swing the series. Offensively, yeah, they could score runs, but neither of these teams is known as a big powerhouse. You could talk about stories. You could talk about Buster Posey, who will probably be the NL MVP this year. You could talk about what Beltran has done. And I've talked about it in my blog. As great of a player as Carlos Beltran has been, he certainly turns it on a notch when it comes to the postseason. And Met fans want to say, oh, well, call third strike on a curveball by Adam Wainwright in 2006. Well, did you, did you get a chance to look at his stats? Did you get a look at what he did in that series? The three home runs, the nearly 300 batting average, the walks to strikeouts. He was not a bum in the 2006 NLCS. He was one of the reasons why the Mets had every chance to win that game seven. But everybody wants to point to the curveball and a called strike three, which ended the Mets season, and say that Beltran is not a good postseason player. Or if you want to go a little further, you could say Beltran is a good postseason player but didn't get the job done for the Mets. That's some more baloney. You talk about the A-Rod stuff being baloney. That was. Because Carlos Beltran's numbers in a postseason, including his time with the New York Mets, and I understand it only involves the 2006 postseason, were a little more than decent. They were good. And everybody points to the curveball. And why not? If you're a Mets fan, you need something to bitch about, right? You want to hold it against every player that plays for your organization because the Mets don't have any World Series championships in the last 26 years. Why not make everybody be a bum? Tell me that Carlos Beltran ain't good. Not only that, but the guy had a good career with the New York Mets and, and was mistreated by the fans. And you look at the history of the New York Mets organization and you talk about David Wright 
whether or not he's going to get a contract extension this year as he goes into his option year, the final year of his contract. Is he going to be an all-time Met? Is he going to be the guy that's going to play his whole career with one team? And you look at the guys that tried it, you know, the crane pulls of the world, you know, who was that everyday player for part of his career with the Mets. Or you look at the guys that tried like a strawberry, you know, the guys that came over like Keith Hernandez or Mike Piazza that had good stretches of their career with the New York Mets. And all everybody wants to do is just get on the players that didn't win the ring. And sometimes you need a little more support than that. And that's why I've gotten on New York fans, whether you're a fan of the Yankees, fan of the Mets. I don't like it. I don't like the support you give your teams. Because you could go to a place like St. Louis and on any given day, good, bad, winning team or losing team, those fans go out there and support their guys. And while we could get into, hey, should you boo your own players? Listen, I, I think there is booing for your own players. To me, that's acceptable sometimes. But if you look at the support that a fan base like the St. Louis Cardinals give to their players, maybe New Yorkers can learn something from it. Maybe you can, just a little bit. Because as a fan, you really should support your freaking team. I'm going to take a quick break. Um, hopefully we'll be joined a little bit by former Orioles pitcher Greg Olson. A little bit more after this. Case is empty, blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Case is empty, blog. Case is empty, blog. Case is empty, blog. Case is empty, blog. Base is empty blob. Which doesn't include last night's game. Welcome back. This is the Passball Show. I'm John Pielli. This is the MTR Radio Network. We're going to finish up. we got another half hour with you up until 7 o'clock. we got MTR's new programming schedule on Thursdays. You'll see uh, MTR Sports Report, It's Your Money, uh, followed by, I believe, uh, Philly Baseball Beat, all coming your way tonight from 7 to 10 p.m. Uh, another thing that, you know, listen, we haven't talked too much about, and I'm sure a lot of people have hit up on it, but the Washington Nationals. Postseason finished the other the other day on Friday, which happened to be my birthday. I remember being out there watching the game unfold. And listen, the Nationals had every reason to feel like they were going to win that game. They came up with a two-run lead going into the ninth. And Drew Storen, who was not their closer for the majority of the season, and that being said, it wasn't necessarily all his fault. He was hurt. Ends up blowing the lead. The Cardinals come back. They win. Obviously, the Cardinals are in the NLCS. And the Washington Nationals aren't. So my question is, how much of the Washington Nationals' 2012 season coming to an end as short as it did is general manager Mike Rizzo's fault? And to me, i got to blame it all on him. His handling of the Steven Strasburg situation and his inning limit and the way he started him in the season and shut him down in September and left him off the postseason roster was an embarrassment. And it's an embarrassment to every team that goes out there and wants to win. It's an embarrassment to every team like the Baltimore Orioles or the Oakland Athletics or to some extent the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Chicago White Sox. Teams that weren't expected to go very far. And, and everything that they put into giving everything they got to compete in the season. And the Washington Nationals and Mike Rizzo just told you, we don't care about that. That it's all about our little plan. And one thing I'm going to get into with Stroudsburg that I don't think a lot of people have talked about 
is the fact that the guy just had a Tommy John surgery. And to me, that's the absolute worst-case scenario for a pitcher. That's what you have innings limits for. That's why pitchers are held back and are only throwing 100 pitches a game or even less in some cases. That's why pitchers are not pitching any more than 150 to 170 innings in their first couple seasons to avoid having Tommy John surgery. And what ended up happening? The worst case scenario already happened. Steven Strasburg had the operation. He already had the Tommy John surgery. And you're going to still baby him when he comes back. Not only that, but in a freaking pennant race. What is the sole reason that your team goes out there and plays for? It's the opportunity to get to the postseason, to win a pennant, and hopefully win a World Series championship. So how could you sell that cutting your best pitcher off after 159 innings on a, in a season where your team's winning the division and coming out there with the number one seed in the National League? How do you sell that as trying to compete? Because I haven't heard the quote yet, but it needs to come out there. Mike Rizzo has to go out on the microphone and get his quote out there and say that I could have given a shit about the 2012 Washington Nationals. I didn't want them to win. I didn't even care. I mean, to me, he looks like the freaking owner in Major League, which he wants the team to lose. Because Mike Rizzo could not have cared less about the 2012 Washington Nationals team. And it was clearly evident by the way he handled the Strasburg situation. He said, I'm shutting him down no matter what. And I don't know if it's that his ego got in the way. I don't know if he felt like because he made a decision he couldn't back down on it. I don't know. I really don't. But he made a decision that was against everything that every professional sports team stands for. And you put your best players on the field when healthy and you make the maximum effort to try to win the whole thing. Not just win a couple games. Not just go 82 and 80 and say you had a winning season. If you could do better, do it. Win the 90-plus games like the Washington Nationals were absolutely capable and showed that they could do. Just go out there and do it. And they did it. The players, Davey Johnson, everybody that was involved in the Washington Nationals team on the field did the best job that they could. And Steven Strasburg, when he went 15-6 and six and struck out more batters than innings pitched, went out there and gave you his all. He worked his ass off for you. And the one guy that could have cared less was general manager Mike Rizzo. And you know what? He didn't even add another pitcher. I mean, listen, I think, I think you could have made a case legitimately if you wanted to. You could have made a case that if he, he went out there, Mike Rizzo got himself a rental, that things could have turned out a little bit better. We're going to put that on hold. Welcome in my next guest and his former pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles, Greg Olson. Greg, you there, buddy? Yeah. How are you? Hey, thanks for calling in, man. It's John Pialli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Appreciate you having a couple yeah. minutes today. Yeah, sorry I'm uh, a couple minutes late. No, it happens, man. I got a, got enough air time, man. I could have handled if you were 20 minutes late. All right, good. Hey, well, welcome aboard, man. I want to start out, start at your the beginning of your career. You were drafted number four overall in 1988 by the Orioles, a team that was off to a terrible start. The team in 1988 ended up losing 107 games, was known for the 21-game losing streak to start the season. Uh, first, a little bit about when you were drafted and what you kind of felt like you were going into with the Baltimore Orioles. Okay, so John, yeah. real quick, are, are we are we like doing this taped or are we live? Yeah, we're on right now, brother. Perfect. All right. Um, you know what? I was uh, I was concerned with what I was getting into. I didn't. Uh, I was a Nebraska boy. Went down to school in Alabama and uh, didn't really have a great idea of what Baltimore was. And I knew that uh, the Dodgers were picking one pick behind them. 
and uh, I, I was really kind of hoping to go to the Dodgers. <laughs> so um, my agent wanted me to try to play hardball, and I'm, I'm obviously not very good at that. And kind of went with it for a little bit, but uh, you know, Baltimore was stuck on, on on me, and they drafted me. I went down there, you know, threw a couple times in in the minor leagues, went and threw uh, threw against their Triple A team for the big league team when they did their off day promotion, you know, in Rochester, and um, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into. I really didn't. I didn't. I didn't know anything about Baltimore. Um, like I said, I was a Midwest guy, so I knew that they weren't, they were scuffling. I was hoping to get called up in August. I had a, uh, a deal in my contract that I'd get called up September 1st. And so I got called up first and, and, uh, I think we ended the season at 54 and 107. Um, that which was actually a little Murray, better after what you had started. Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken, you know, two Hall of Famers, um, Got called up with Kurt Schilling, so we were on the same flight together from Charlotte, North Carolina, to see. We flew to Seattle. Nice. And my my first game was kind of comical because we had an off day, so we flew in on an off day on September first, and and uh, September second was my first big league game. And I'm sitting in the bullpen with you know everybody and Kurt Schilling, and and uh, eighth inning rolls around, and and they tell me to get to get loose. And I'm like, well, you know, surely they're not going to pitch me on the first day that I'm in the big leagues. You know, so it's probably just a little bullpen, you know, whatever. I don't know why they're doing it now. I don't know any better. So I'm like, okay. Um, warm up, go into the warm up, throw a bullpen. Next thing I know, you're in the game. <laughs> and I go walk into the game going, what am I doing here? It was, you know, it was tunnel vision. I'm facing Steve Balboni going, that's Steve Balboni. Why me? You know, it was it was it was actually it was a, it was a great story and and uh, ended up getting you know getting out of the inning and and got a win the next inning. We scored three runs in the top of the ninth and and uh, I got the win. Not not a bad debut at all, huh? No, nah, not a bad debut, but it, it was really funny because I was warming up going. I'm just throwing a bullpen. You know, the bullpen coach wants to see me warm up. I guess I don't. You know. I have no idea why I'm warming up because the score is too close, and I'm 21 years old, and I just got here. <laughs> it's kind of kind of like the rookie rookie of the year part, where it's like, hey, Rowan Gardner, you're in the game. It just kind of looks like, yeah, oh, I guess, all right, I'm, I'm in the game. I just kind of went, wait, you, you want me to go in the game? <laughs> I, I I figured you'd give me a week of just kind of sitting around here and getting a feel for it all, and it's like, okay, yeah, talk about getting thrown on the wolves, man. Oh. It was, uh, you know, it was probably a good thing because I think I would have been a nervous wreck if you said you're warming up to go in the game. And it kind of just know? took those nerves right away. Yeah. And so, uh, as you move on, going into 1989, of course, you you go right into spring training. You end up becoming the Orioles' closer. You establish yourself that year. You win the rookie of the year. On top of that, the Orioles' team is a lot better. They win 87 games this year. Tell us a little bit about the transition from be, being a you know a losing team in, ni- in 1988 to a team that's a lot better in 1989. You know what we uh, carefully saying we traded out some guys that you know might have been towards the end of their careers and brought in you know Steve Finley, Craig Worthington, Bob Malacky, you know myself. Um, Brady Anderson, we brought in a lot of guys that had tasted the big leagues for a little bit, or that were, you know, ended up having really good careers. Pete Harnish, um, that ended up having good big league careers. And we brought all those guys up in 89, and uh, nobody told me or nobody told any of us that we weren't supposed to be good. And so we went out there and we just played every day and played hard and, and, didn't really beat ourselves you know we didn't have great pitching we didn't have great you know we had great defense didn't have a great offensive team but uh we went out every day and we played hard and then gave ourselves a chance to win and we won some games and and uh that was kind of a comical thing was you know we got to september 1st and somebody's like you know you guys realize you're not supposed to be here and i was like well who says that 
You know, who says that we're not supposed to be here? Why are we supposed to be here? Who says that I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I don't know. You know, this is my first year in the big leagues. You know, who says this isn't my normal? Yeah, absolutely. You know, who, says, who, who says this isn't Steve Finley's normal? And so uh, that was it. And it was we brought a bunch of young guys up. Nobody knew what normal was. Nobody knew what our average was. And uh, everybody went out and pitched well. Malaki probably won 15 games. Jeff Ballard won 18. You know, I saved 27 games and had a one-something ERA. And, you know, we didn't know that wasn't the normal way you're supposed to go uh, go about a big league season. And uh, we played hard and, and had a chance in the last the last three games of the season, game 160, I screwed up. And um, that cost us a chance to win the AL East. It happens, so. man. Hey, listen, now, now, what, what did you think about the, the influence that manager Frank Robinson had on you? Obviously, Frank, you know, a Hall of Fame player. He was always known as a hard-nosed guy. He seems to have that an impact on his players as a manager. Tell us a little bit about playing for Frank Robinson. You know, I love playing for Frank. Um, he treated me great. He gave me a chance. He gave me the ball. Um, never said anything. Never, you know, never was never was hard on me. You know, there were some guys that uh, that didn't like him because he was, you know, difficult and he didn't. He expected more. He expected a lot out of you. And uh, based on his career and what he did, you know, he had reasons to expect that. Um, and I went out there, and like I said, I, I had a really good two-plus years under Frank because, you know what, he gave me the ball, and I did what I was supposed to do or what I felt like I was supposed to do. So I loved him. He, you know, he let me walk in the office and, and ask him questions that only a 21-year-old kid who didn't know better would ask. <laughs> um, and... I just thank him for the opportunity. Every time I see him, I'm just, you know, thanks, Frank. I pray, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you throwing a 20 run. You know, they, they've, they've done it a little bit more recently where kids come out of college and, and they have great stuff and they, they give them a chance. But at that point, no, you, you, you had to work your way through the minor leagues. And, and there wasn't a 21 year old kid that was, you know, five months out of college that was going to get a chance to close a game ever. And he gave me that chance. So that was Frank. You know, he was, like I said, he, uh, I don't know how many times I probably walked in the office and go, why didn't you put me in? <laughs> and I look back at that and I got the chance to play till I was 34. And I don't think when I was 34 years old, I would have done that. But he never yelled at me, never scolded me, never slammed the door, never, you know, he just said, this is why. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, I, th I think a lot of other people, you know, share those same opinions of Frank, who I think was a very underrated manager, you know, in his, in his time from his days that he took over for Cleveland. And once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Orioles pitcher Greg Olson. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Olson 30. Now, as you enjoy a little bit of success from 1989 to 1993, as you're a premium closer, you're up there, you're getting the near 30 saves every, you know, every given year. Did this come as a surprise to you? Did you envision yourself being as dominant of a closer for a long period of time like you would did? Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I was blessed. Um, God gave me uh, a, a great ability to throw a breaking ball and throw a good fastball. And he also gave me the ability to, um, when it came time to make a pitch, it came time to, you know, this is the moment of the game. I was I was better, and I, I I can't explain it. You know, I actually had one manager say I've only seen one other guy that actually can increase everything that he's got at the optimal moment. And Johnny O's told me that after a game. He's like, I've never seen I've only seen one other guy who's Dwight Good that has the ability to increase everything when the game's at the absolute peak of the moment. And God gave me that ability, and I, I thrived in the, in, in the biggest moments. I thrived in them. And so the, the year 91 was the worst year of my life. 
and it was still a great year to close it, you know. And so I, I that that was what I expected. I did I expected never to fail, and um, that was my mentality going out to the game. You know, I, I was scared to fail, but I expected never to fail. So everything that I did those first five six years, that was what I was supposed to do. That was what I was born to do, and. Um, you know, it sounds, man, all the listeners are going to be going, what an egotistical, you know, blah, blah, blah. But. Yeah, listen, confidence that, is that, a good thing, that, man. That, that was what I grew up doing. I grew up in Nebraska. I grew. I never lost a game in high school. I, I, I wasn't supposed to fail. And I didn't allow myself to, you know, accept failure. Failure was such a, um, an abomination that. Uh, you know, that was what I was supposed to do. That was what I was born to do. You know, and it, it was, it was kind of nice. I got to, um, I know I'm wearing out your time, but, uh, I got to St. Louis a couple of years after I blew my elbow out and Dennis Eckersley was the closer. And, uh, we sat down and talked and, and I, I just wanted, I'd never been around closers. You know, I, I came up in Baltimore and there wasn't another closer and I got thrown into the mix and then I was the guy and all of a sudden, you know, I get that title. And so I had never actually sat down and talked to another closer. And uh, they're talking to Dennis Eckersley. And I was like, so what, you know, when you go out there, what do you, what are you afraid of? What, you know, when you go out there, what do you, what are you worried about? And he goes, he goes, I, I, I can't tell you how much I fear failure. You know, I can't fail. Failure is, is, is such Oh, such an awful thing. You know, when you screw up a game, it's such an awful feeling that, uh, you know, it, it wrecks my week. You know, if I screw up a game that week and I, I can get the next three saves and be everything's great, but that, that, that failure that I had on Monday where I screwed up the game is still sitting with me. And I, I, I could probably remember every one of the games I failed. Um, and that was the way I was. I couldn't... Uh, it was kind of a miserable existence, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, as, if, I up a, if I screwed up a game, and I came home. Man, you didn't want to be near me. Listen, I would. I wouldn't blame you. You know, as well, you as you move on, I think it was what the nineteen ninety three season. If I'm not mistaken, I think you came across an injury. Yeah, I blew my uh, medial collateral ligament out. And that, you know, unfortunately led to you know an unfortunate string of events where it took you a little while to kind of get back to where you needed to be. Uh, tell us a little bit about going through that. You know, unfortunately, when you you know when you found out about the injury and the rehab and everything, and get yourself back to the majors. Of course, after the injury was your last game that you pitched for the Orioles. You came back with the Braves in 1994, and then a couple other teams after that. But tell us a little bit about the you know the the rehab and the recovery and get yourself back on a big league mound. You know, I I, I really never left the big league. I got. Uh... You know, I, I had a, a 1-6 ERA in 93, and I blew my elbow out, and I pitched in one game after that. And I was lucky enough, um, Davey Lopes was our first base coach, and I had blown my elbow out, you know, and it was obvious. Frank Job said I needed surgery, and this is, you know, the Tommy John, Frank Job of, of fame. And um, said, I, you know, I needed the Tommy John surgery. I needed it right now. And for some reason, it was just sitting with me going, you know what, I, I can pitch through this. I can figure it out. And so I said, you know what, this is going to take me a year. If I have the surgery right now, it's going to take me a year. So I'm going to miss most of 94. I'm going to miss the rest of 93. And so what difference does it make when I have the surgery? So I went back to Baltimore, started rehabbing on my own, lifting, and trying to do some things to strengthen the area. And Davey Lopes, our first base coach, said, you know, um, Nolan Ryan had the same thing in 1987, and he pitched through it. And so, amazingly, Nolan Ryan is in town that week, and uh, we're playing Texas, and I walked over and said, Nolan, you know, tell me what you did in 1987 to heal your elbow up. And we spent probably an hour before batting practice talking about it, and he was pitching that night, so he's like, listen, I, you know, I, I kind of got to get myself ready. Um but here's my home phone number. Give me a call, and let's figure this thing out. And I was like, 
you know, I'm still, what, I'm 25 years old, and I'm looking at him going, Nolan Ryan just gave me his home phone number. Wow, that's insane. I'm like, wow, I made it. <laughs> and uh, I called him up. You know, I was on the DL. I called him up during you know, during one of the games or something. He had to leave that game. Called him up and uh, talked to me for another hour. This is what I did. This is how I did it. You know, I came back the next year. Everything was fine. And I pretty much tried to follow his routine. And our training staff wasn't really on board. The management wasn't really on board. Um and I worked my butt off and started throwing. I threw in a game a month and a half after I tore the ligament. wasn't very good, but came back the next year and, and uh, took an MRI with uh, Dr. Am- Andrews and had him look at it in Birmingham. And he said, i got to be honest with you, Oli, there's nothing here. This thing's healed out. You're clean. Wow. And by, by that point, I had screwed up my mechanics trying to pitch hurt. And uh, it took me a year to fix my mechanic. Yeah, no, no, so it, it was an amazing story. Yeah, no, it really is, man. And actually, leads me into my next question. What What's your opinion about you know the Tommy John surgery and everything that that pitchers seem to be leaning towards in similar situations to what you went through? Do you think Do you think that pitchers may be better off, you know, just doing the regular rehab as opposed to having the operations like they do on a regular basis now? You know what, with the time frame, I mean, in any surgical procedure now based on, you know, 2012 to 1993, we're going to be a lot better. And I wouldn't I wouldn't tell anybody to do what I did. It worked, but like I said, I screwed up my mechanics so bad trying to pitch through it. Um, and it was, it was a 50-50 proposition in 1993. I might never pitch again. You know, they might not get it right. It was it was a coin flip, and now you know these guys are so good surgically with the Tommy John. Um, I wouldn't tell anybody to do what I did. I'd tell them to go through it. Yeah, I, actually, I kind of agree with you because you know the way the procedures perform now. I mean, you're seeing pitchers actually get back sometimes before a full calendar year now. Yeah, and they're better. Yeah, and their their arms yeah. are as strong as they've ever been. I mean, it, you know, that's absolutely right. Now, did you feel anything, so, uh, you know, velocity-wise? Did you you felt like you lost a little bit of velocity rehabbing the way you did? You know, I I, I lost um, my mental edge. Okay. I went from, uh, you know, never have been hurt, and I felt like I was invincible. You know, it sounds egotistical again, and I'm just being brutally honest, but I, I, I went from being invincible to now I'm hurt and, and nothing's right. Um, and that was where I lost. I lost uh, kind of the, I'm going to throw this 100%. I'm going to throw this as hard as I want to throw it. And, and after that, it was like, you know what, I'm not that comfortable throwing as hard as I want to throw. I'm not that comfortable throwing this curveball as, as hard as I can possibly throw it. And before I got hurt, you know, that was that was what made me was I'm going to throw this curveball as hard as anybody's ever thrown a curveball. Um, and that's what I did. You know, and that, that, that was what I lost. Yeah. Now, did you feel did you feel you ever had to make, like, maybe wholesale changes to, uh, to to what you were doing, did you feel like you had to reinvent yourself as a pitcher in any way throughout your career? You know, I, I felt like um, I was always in search of the old me. Okay. Um, I was never searching for a new me. I was always in search of the old me. What what was I before? So I always, you know, from town to town, I ended up playing on ten major league teams or nine. Depends on how you look at Kansas City twice. Um and so every city I'd go to, you know, new pitching coach, I'd take film of me in 1993 before I got hurt. You know, when I got a 1-6 ERA, I felt like I was one of the best guys in the game. You were. And, you know, here's my old film. And where am I at from there? You tell me. You know, fix me. Put me back. Because I could um, – God also gave me the ability, and it was kind of a curse, that I could – you you could tell me to do something and I could do it, and I could do it within a bolt within five minutes of a bullpen. You could you could change my mechanics and I could do it and it would feel like it was normal. 
but the bad thing about that was that when I got in a bad habit, it felt like it was normal. So I, I could slide in, you know, I could be really good for two weeks, and then for all of a sudden for a week, I wouldn't I wouldn't recognize anything, and I'd have to go look at film going, you know what, my arm slot's slow, or I'm doing this, or I'm flying open, but it felt normal, it felt great. And so I could pick anything up in a heartbeat, so I'd go to the pitching coaches going, you know, here's my film of 93, put me back. You know, um, so that I was always in search of the old me. Now, uh, yeah. it ends up, I ended up getting into 96, and I had a pitching coach that, that, you know, we worked on a slider, we worked on a cut fastball, we worked on a change-up, and I ended up... Was that in Detroit or Houston? Detroit, and okay. I ended up, uh, it was John Matlack, and he ended up putting a change-up in, and uh, and it ended up probably being as good as any pitch I, I, I ever had. So, for the last five years of my career... You know, I would throw ball one on purpose just so I could throw a changeup middle middle of the plate, bottom down, and get a ground ball to second base or shortstop guaranteed. So, you know, it worked out great, and that was what kept me alive. Was that you know, if I hadn't picked up a changeup, I, I wouldn't have pitched as long as I did. Yeah, so that, that in a way is kind of a little bit of a rebirth of you, John Pialli. Once again, I'm here with former former All Star pitcher Greg Olson. Now, tell us a little bit about your. 1998 season because you you you're with the Arizona Diamondbacks you go out there you, you 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 become the closer again you get yourself 30 saves tell us a little bit about the difference really other than the changeup between pitching in 1998 and then closing like you were with the Orioles the beginning part of your career um you know it was the difference of in 1993 or 1989 whatever I knew that I could get if I got one strike on you, I was going to strike you out, and I was going to throw a bunch of breaking balls, and you were done. In 1998, um, I couldn't rely on the breaking ball to get everybody out, and so I, I, I more relied on the fact that you knew that I had a great breaking ball, and you were looking for it, and I would lock you up with a fastball. You know, 0-2 o- 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 fastballs, I probably struck out. 20% of the people that I faced, you know, I just throw an 0-2 fastball middle half away and on the plate, and you'd be, you'd, every, every hitter's looking for a breaking ball because I'm, you know, I'm famous for a breaking ball. They're thinking I'm going to get them out with that, and I just throw a fastball, you know, middle half away and maybe vapor locked. So I, I became a lot more cerebral. Um, I, I, I learned how, you know, I learned what hitters were trying to do. I could watch at bats. I could watch how their foul balls were, and I knew what they were trying to do. And so I got really good at just watching hitters going, you know what, this is what he's trying to do on me. And everybody's different, and everybody's got uh, different game plans versus different pitchers. And when you're a closer, everybody has a game plan for you. When you're a middle reliever, nobody has a game plan for you. They're just up there hitting. Um, and so I was just going, you know what? Okay, I know I know what you're trying to do, based on the, you know the last at bat I faced you last night, and a couple of the foul balls you've had today. I know what you're trying to do, and and I counteracted it, and that was how I pitched effectively. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I, I'll tell you one thing, man. There's 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 nothing wrong, and honestly, you shouldn't be ashamed in any way of having the confidence that you had, because I guarantee that confidence and that almost like you know you know, ego kind of thing that you were talking about, I guarantee led you to every bit of success you had in your career, Greg. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that, but when you're sitting there talking on a radio show and you're trying to explain mentality and you're saying, you know, I was invincible and you're walking out on the mound and you have to have this complete and absolute arrogance to walk out the mound in the ninth inning in a one-run lead and run through the middle of the lineup, and you got Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter, Robinson Cano, um, just because just I just got done watching the Yankees game, and you got these three guys coming up, and you got to have an absolute arrogance to go, I'm going to get all three of these guys out, and hopefully I embarrass at least one of them. <laughs> you know, and that, that's what that's what I'm thinking. I'm going, how, you know, I'm not – I'm going to strike you out. How am I, you know, and so from pitch one, and I had a pitching coach tell me, you can't do that. I'm like, why? 
from pitch one, I'm going, how am I going to strike this guy out? It's not how I'm going to get you out. It's not first pitch, how I'm going to get you out. It's first pitch, how am I going to strike you out? And that was what I thought. And nobody, you know, you, you had people tell me that that's wrong. You can't do that. And I was like, well, that's the way I work. I'm going to strike you out. No, absolutely, man. Yeah. Now, listen, Greg, I want to thank you a lot for having some time today, man. Hopefully I could get you on the program sometime in the near future. That'd be great. I appreciate it. Hey, you know, all, all your listeners, if you can, I, uh, if you got a, uh, just a second for me to do a self-push, I wrote it. a book called uh, We Got to Play Baseball, and um, it's 60 major leaguers telling their favorite baseball stories. It's a great book. Um, absolutely had a blast interviewing George Brett and Jim Abbott and, you know, like I said, there's probably 45 major leaguers that told their favorite stories. And it's called We Got to Play Baseball. It's on Amazon. If you get a chance, you'll, you'll absolutely love it. You'll have a blast reading it. Yeah, fair enough. And that gives you another reason to come on the program, and we can talk about the book next time. Yeah, I'll send you one, and uh, you can go through it, and then we can talk about it. Oh, absolutely, man. That would be awesome. Thanks a lot, Greg. appreciate having you on, Thanks, buddy. Time. No worries. I appreciate it. Anytime, man. And that was Greg Olson. Great show today. I want to thank John D'Aquisto, Dave Coggin, Greg Olson, and obviously everything that we had a chance to talk about today, past ball show. Be back with you next week where Boy Meets Machine will be in there. Let's get out of here, man. Mm-hmm.